living on the leading edge with Amy. Living on the leading edge with Amy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Welcome, Yama. Thanks for coming on the show. Yama, brother. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Huh? Great to have you, bro. I've been really looking forward to this episode and getting on, you know, in the arm with you about mm. a whole heap of different issues and what you're passionate about and... And obviously, um, yeah, just whatever you want to talk about today, bro. Any chance you could give us some background information on you and who you are, who's your mob, and where you grew up, community you grew up with? So my name is Brendan Moyle. I'm currently the um, CEO of Dark and Jungle Local Aboriginal Land Council. I was down there in Canberra for probably two or three decades and spent pretty much two, two, 20 odd years at, um, on the board of what's now Nambi Local Aboriginal Land Council. And, I have to give a shout out to my elders down there who, particularly as um, someone that was actually getting older on, on Nunawala and Ambry country, they invested a lot of time into me. My mob was Gomeroy, Camilleroy. Uh, my great-grandmother, though, it, um, was Morawari. She was born up on Barwa Mission up at Bree and then relocated down to Gla, at um, the old Glargambo Mission. And that's when she married in with all the bakers and the barkers and that. So that, um, my, my grandmother was a baker. And they went right across northern New South Wales, southeast Queensland and um, ended up back in uh, the Big M, Morwari. Ended up down the Snowy River, at, um, down around the Snow Mountains and um, south coast of New South Wales where particularly my, my generation and my dad's generation at, um, reside nowadays. I come on State Land Council as a councillor and, and you come on board as uh, I think as a Dark and Jung CEO of the Dark and Jung Land Council. Mm. I met you up at uh, Uncle Faf's funeral, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like a lot of Monroe Seniors uh, funeral. Tell me a bit about your history within the Land Rights Network mm. and what you've done over your years. So, spent a fair bit of time living down the Snow Mountains actually, and then uh, living in a place called Bombala for a while too. Telling about thousand people back then. For me, being in land rights for 25 plus years now, so I'm starting to show my age. My dad's been on the board of Narrow Land Council, my sister's on the board of Illawarra Land Council, my auntie's now on the board of Narrow Land Council. And it really came back to my grandmother, before she ended up down the Snow River, she was out at Blacktown. You know, I still remember hearing stories from elders and uh, and mob that uh, she was instrumental in fighting to get the actual sewerage on out at Blacktown back when she was out there i mean you know mob didn't have access to the basic utilities and stuff and she was really fighting for it she ended up moving down the snow river following one of her brothers who had um, pretty much used to knock around with old the old uncle Lyle. and it's been a real blessing for me you know over the years you know being able to spend time with with our elders quite often now in this modern world we forget about the journey of our ancestors and our elders and and, and the path that they've set before us. Having time to learn from people like, like old Uncle Lyle Munro, even Lyle Moe and, and Lloyd and everyone else, but but down the south coast, growing up around down that way as well. Benny Brown, Uncle Sonny Sims, you know, at um, Ber- Auntie Bertha Bloxham, Uncle Willie Bloxham, Auntie Faye Trendo. So many people, some are still with us, but many have passed. And I was really blessed. I started the land rights movement when I was in my very early 20s just as a member, and um, Auntie Matilda House and, and Antoinette House is related to all my family. Uh, Auntie Matilda spent a lot of time with me, particularly when I moved to Canberra, and you know, hearing the stories about the Ten Embassy and where everything actually came from and understanding and, and living in community and trying to do the right thing for our people. Learning those lessons from them, and I still remember one of the most profound 
experiences I had. I don't mean any disrespect to anyone. I remember I was sitting with an old uncle on Munro down at Wollongong one day and it was the night that Uncle Bruce passed away and you know he was sitting there telling me stories about Gran and my uncles and everyone else and we were laughing and the next morning he was gone he had to go back back to Moree. You know that was really profound for me because I started to look around at our generation <clears throat> like I'm almost 50 now and this is going back a while ago but I'd already started to actually have elders put their time and, and their confidence in me but then when I, that was really profound for me because I started to look around and I thought to myself you know where are the people that are, are the strong voices where are we continuing those strong voices where are we continuing the fight mm. and people forget uh, so that pathway people forget the fights that that, the, that our elders and our ancestors have had to actually do just to give us what we have today mm. and you know I often say that the, the first wave of colonisation was uh, um, taking the land the second wave of colonisation was the assassination the massacres uh, the assimilation of our people the third wave of colonisation is now which is the stealing of our identity uh, um, indoctrinating us so much that we want to be uh, um, like everyone else or white fellas stealing our identity. I think probably the next most profound thing for me when my daughter Taylor was born, she's 16 now, when she was born Auntie Matilda House came up to the hospital with me and it's funny I never really wanted kids because I always thought I was a bit too wild when I was young and had struggled when I was younger uh, in life and I had this little baby and Auntie Matilda looked at me and said son how do you feel? And I remember just holding back the tears from the emotion. I said, aunt, you know, my family, my dad, my grandmother, were always brought up to be fighters. Our mob, our Gomorrah Camillary mob, we are fighters. Mm. And it, um, but I looked at her and I said, for the first time ever, I truly understood what I was fighting for. Mm. And it's for those future generations. And for me, that comes back to what I was saying in terms of third wave of colonisation. Land rights for me, land rights, the power of land rights isn't in the legislation. That's just the way we intersect with the white world. Mm. The power of land rights sits in our people. Mm. It sits in our people through our land council network. You know, it's funny, it, um, I've got a tattoo, a land rights tattoo on my shoulder. And there's a fundamental difference for my tattoo. My tree's got roots. Hmm. I remember people saying to me about 10 years ago when I got it done, they said, oh, it's, um, what do the roots stand for? I said, that's, that's our elders, that's our ancestors, that's our actual communities. Hmm. Because no matter how big a tree is, if it doesn't have strong roots, it falls over. And when I look at, at some of the fights and the battles that, that like my brother Nathan Moran, it's um, down at Metro, and we've been talking about for 20, 30 years, what we're now seeing now is we're trying to re regenerate the strength of our land rights movement mm. so that we're no longer asking for authority. We're no longer asking for permission to be heard. We have a damn right to be heard and we have the power to be heard. Are you a thought leader living on the leading edge? Take the talking stick email ab at living on the leading edge dot com. Uh-huh, uh-huh, sing along now. You've been talking about the third wave. Um, Aboriginality, um, that's obviously a big uh, topic in our communities at the moment with um, people um, claiming to be Aboriginal. Um, people changing lanes halfway through life. I, I think it's become a huge issue, especially in, in urban areas, but it's also uh, happening right across the state. A lot of mob have, have been talking about it and 
there's issues, land councils being taken over by people who've never been Aboriginal, but all of a sudden they've, like I said, they've changed lanes halfway through life. What's your perspective on that and what's going on? One of my elders down the south coast, Uncle Tom Slocky, uh, about 20 years ago, he said to me, you know, Aboriginal people have had to walk many different paths to get where we are today. Mm. We've had significant atrocities. There's been stolen generation, there's been assimilation, there's been massacres. For me, though, I find it really personally insulting that people will disingenuously say that they're stolen generation. That shows no respect for the people who were stolen. It shows no respect for the people who, for the descendants of the people who were stolen. Today, earlier today, I was down at Parliament House. So I had to give evidence in terms of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Bill. And one of the things that, that both Nathan and I talked about was the fraud. Because people are doing it for a benefit. They're doing it to generate money. Under the Crimes Act, and I said this to the members of um, the Legislative Assembly, under the Crimes Act, 1900, if you receive a benefit by deceit, that's fraud. And what we're seeing is this commoditization of cultural identity. I mean, I've always been respectful where people are genuinely disengaged and disconnected, but that is their journey. Finding about an ancestor, a long-lost ancestor, is not sufficient. It is up to them to not just actually identify where that long-lost ancestor is, but to actually go back and reconnect with their people. And if their people choose not to actually accept them, then so be it, you're not black. Now, for me, this becomes a real issue because what we've got is people infiltrating our communities and infiltrating our organisations. We've got people setting up their own organisations mm-hmm. and they're doing it for money. On the Central Coast, we have people who are making thirty dollars and $40,000 a month through their organisations they've set up. Whereas if you believe what they've written, you know, they've been white for seven generations or eight generations. You know, if someone actually suddenly finds out that they've got ancestry back to the First Fleet and they had an English ancestor come out at that point in time, they can't suddenly say, oh, I'm an English citizen. They can't say, I'm an, Engli- I'm an expert in English law as an LORA and culture. So why, does it, why is it allowed to happen to us? And so the challenge for us is that we need to show our strength in terms of how we take the task of government. There's a lot of things that I unpack and that I'm trying to actually look at how we mobilise our land rights movement about because our land rights movement was founded on identity, it was founded on survival. We've got a new wave of attack on our people and it's this, it's the third wave of colonisation, the stealing and the colonisation of our identity. Now... One of the things that I quite often say is that, uh, you know, it started with the education sector and we put in a complaint to the Independent Commission Against Corruption at, um, saying that basically Sydney University was guilty of corrupt conduct because they were accepting self-identification to hand out benefits. And, you know, there's been a fair bit of work to undo at, um, or to unpack that. We're going to be starting with the next phase in terms of that work. But what we've seen as well, since the introduction of the Indigenous Procurement Policy, the federal level now the Aboriginal Procurement Policy, it's become even more commoditised to be an Aboriginal person. When you go back to the history of the Indigenous Procurement Policy, it was based on the principles of trickle-down economics. Mm. So Boyd Hunter, who worked for um, CAPA, the Centre of Aboriginal Policy and Economic Research at the ANU, wrote a paper back in, I think it was 2012, 2013. What he found is that Aboriginal organisations are between 30 and 100 times more likely 
to employ Aboriginal people. The principle of that is actually absolutely spot on. Government then turned around and said, well, hang on two secs, how do we use the billions of dollars that we procure, how do we use that to help grow the Aboriginal economy? So they created what was called the Indigenous Procurement Policy. Now, so the principles were that if they funnel 3% of the, their total revenue through to these Aboriginal organisations, those Aboriginal organisations are actually going to go out and employ Aboriginal people. They're going to be 30 to 100 times more likely to employ local mob. Mm. At that time, the amount of people coming out of the woodwork. And we see in the narrative that people say, oh, I found out when I was 44 or 45 about my Aboriginality. I keep going, no, you found out you had an Aboriginal ancestor and even then it hasn't been tested. Mm. But suddenly these people are becoming business leaders and speaking with authority on, on behalf of our people. I remember there was one guy that um, down in Canberra, I mean, I used to have run-ins with because he was a bit of a redneck. And he came up to me after the IPP, the Indigenous Procurement Policy was announced, and he's gone, guess what, I'm a Rudgery. And I'm looking at him, I go, and I knew exactly what he was trying to say. I said, Wurundjeri, I haven't heard of that. Where's that from? He said, oh, the biggest nation in New South Wales. I'll show you on the Atsis map. I said, you mean Wurundjeri? Yeah, 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 that, that, that. Now, never been through the Wurundjeri community that he's claiming to be part of. Never been through that. But he's happy to try and commoditise and say, hey, I'm an Aboriginal person because I want, I want a competitive advantage. Because as a, as a white person, I'm not making enough money. Hmm. Now, for me, government usually intersects with things when there is a failure in the marketplace or there's a failure in the market. The Indigenous procurement policy is because there was a failure in the market. There wasn't many Aboriginal organisations getting businesses and work. And now we hear about black cladding, and black cladding is a real issue. Yeah. That's where you know, you've got an Aboriginal person basically selling the cultural identity for a white person to make a lot of money. Mm. We've also got this fake Aboriginality as well. And when you look at the statistics, so under the Indigenous Procurement Policy, I mean, I, I looked at it about a month ago, the federal government now says that $5.3 billion has gone out the door since 2015. $5.3 If it was really based on, and I know it was, because I was there at the time, if it was really delivering for our people, how come when we drive back to Moree or Queanbeyan or, or Nowra, we see the same mob? Actually, their lives aren't getting better, it's getting worse. Mm. How come when we look at closing the gap and government's performance reports there on closing the gap, we don't see any improvement in Aboriginal employment, Aboriginal income statistics? We don't see any improvement in terms of uh, Aboriginal home ownership. Mm. So where's all this money going? And that's one of the big questions we've got. And this is where, for me, I often talk about it being the colonizer, the third wave of colonisation, being the colonising of our identity. Hmm. Under the census, you know, with the last census, our population apparently grew by 25%. Hmm. Now, our birth rates aren't that high. Hmm. I mean, a lot of us out there are like a dory, hmm. but our birth rates aren't that high. Hmm. So the only way that it can be actually... Can be summed up is because people are self identifying. Yeah. And when I was working in government, part of the challenge that I saw was that people are really proud, they find heritage, but they've usually lived with higher education standards, they've got multiple investment properties, they've got all of these things. Mm. I've had people openly say to me, Oh, look, well, you know, it, um, I found out that four generations ago I was, yeah, I had an average, I, I'm an Aboriginal person because this person four generations ago, they never prove it. 
But what happens is, because they're coming with higher levels of wealth and everything else in education, they're pulling the stats up. Mm. And this is one of the things that, for me, with land rights, and I used to be a board member on the ALS mm. and former chair of the ALS here in New South Wales ACT, I'm on the board for Aboriginal housing providers. I go out and in the communities that we live and we breathe and we, we're part of, and life's getting harder, it's getting worse for our mob. But the statistics and the money is is going out the door. So what do you think the answer is to the black cladding? What needs to happen? So I think black cladding, to be honest with you, I think there needs to be a resurgence in terms of the way that we look at the three-part definition. I don't think the three-part definition needs to change. A lot of people don't realise what I was always told and taught was that you know, go back to the old NAC, the National Aborigines Conference, well and truly prior to ATSIC, mm. you know, at, um, give a shout out to our elders who were part of it. Uncle Lyle, mm. um, senior, you know, Farfi, he was the chair of it for, for a while. Uncle Ozzy Cruz, people that were the forefront. Uncle Bill Smith, my mum's brother, Uncle George Griffiths, Uncle Griffo. Yeah. That's how I'm in this as well. I yep. grew up in the in the struggle and with the elders like that on my dad's side and my mum's side. So, so it's like... We've got this, I don't know, would you call us land rights kids? We're land rights babies. We We're grew up in it. Yeah. We, we, these seeds have been planted in us. We've grown up with these conversations around the table, people coming around and yarning about black, how we're going to exactly. get to Sydney, how we're going to get down there for that march, or what are we going to yep. do, What are we? how do we do this, how do we do that? Absolutely. I remember those just as a kid walking around and getting hunted away from the table Yeah. when they were all having yarns yeah, and no kids allowed around the table. We've grown up in land rights, and people forget that land rights isn't just about <coughs> land and title. Mm. It's actually about identity. It's about who we are. Under Section 52 of the Land Rights Act, we as local Aboriginal land councils have, short of, of say, native title with its determination, we are the cultural authorities. We're responsible for actually representing the rights and interests of Aboriginal people in our areas. Yeah. Section 106 of the Act, municipal yep. has that same right and that same obligation. But... It's funny, I think so many Gabbas seem to think that land rights is about t- land title, it's about about money. It, that's part of it, but it's not all of it, it's about self-determination. And when you understand, so where the three-part definition came from, the NAC was the ones who were actually working on it. Yeah. In 1981, they actually came forward to the Fraser government and they presented it. In 1981, the Fraser cabinet actually agreed the three-part definition. Yeah. The stories I heard was that where it originally came from was that we were tired, our communities were tired of being defined by non-Indigenous people and non-Indigenous government entities. Yeah. Then in 1983, the Land Rights Act enshrined it here in New South Wales. And for anyone that's listening, pretty much all mob know, but anyone else that's listening, that you've got to have be an Aboriginal person. You've got to have heritage. Yeah. You've got to be able to prove your heritage. Then you've got to willingly identify yourself and then you've got to be accepted. A lot of people don't realise that three-part definition. So under the legal framework, the basis of our ICAC complaint was that absolutely people have to provide a confirmation of Aboriginality, but it has to be from an entity that has the legitimate cultural authority. And so with Marbo 2, that underpins native title, Justice Brennan made the determination the third part has to be from a group with relevant cultural authority mm. for the group being claimed. Mm. So if you want to say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Camilleroy or Gomeroy man, uh, you've got to be able to have that tested mm. by Camilleroy or Gomeroy people. 
Mm. And it's funny, like today I said to said to these uh, said to the people at the parliamentary inquiry, you know, imagine how much offence it would cause if someone, if a German person or someone from German ancestry suddenly said, you know, I'm Jewish, I'm going to do all this cultural stuff on the Jewish on Jewish people. Mm. I said, that's the same. I, I don't mean to cause offence, pot, but that's the same as what we're seeing with this cultural fraud, mm. where people are coming out of work. They're not testing them. They're not being tested by people or communities, uh, or the community organisations that have legitimate cultural authority. Mm. Our land councils provide a system to do that, mm. and we need to actually have a conversation about how we do that. Yeah. But the other thing is too, though. I mean, when I was in Canberra, and I've seen it in Sydney as well. I remember this one lad turned up. And he was all offended because they wouldn't accept. He signed a stat deck. <coughs> and now I, I have an aversion to sign a stat deck saying you're an Aboriginal person. But the gubbars that, that were in the government agency I was in refused to accept his stat deck. Good on them for that. But the only reason they refused to accept it was because he said, we suspect my great-great-grandmother was Fanny Cochran Smith's illegitimate child. So there was no proof. It was just mm. suspecting that four or five generations ago... Then when he come and met with me, he looked at me and said, but people say I look Aboriginal. And I looked at him and I said, you go back five generations ago, you've got 50 or 60 ancestors at that, and one of them you suspect was an Aboriginal person. Hmm. And suddenly you look Aboriginal? How does that work? Hmm. But this is the thing is, though, that we've got this woke society and, you know, it's been commoditized. Government wants to pump money out the door. They're not looking at the outcomes that are actually being delivered from that. Mm. They're not looking at the intent with the Indigenous procurement policy. They advertise, oh, we've got $5.3 billion out the door. Everyone goes, oh, that's fantastic. You know, they want to have their Aboriginal employment targets. So if they let people self-identify as an Aboriginal person, their employment statistics look better. You look at the educational institutions, you look at the universities, every Aboriginal student they get coming through, they get additional funding for mm. and support for. So there's now this, as part of this third wave of colonisation, there's been this creation of a new economy on Aboriginal identity. Mm. And, you know, I've always been a firm believer, you don't have to have, you don't have to have grown up on a mission. You don't have to have done those things. I reflect back on what Uncle Tom said to me. Our mob have walked many different paths, mm. you know, and we've got to respect that. Mm. But respect doesn't mean we allow absolute abject fraud. Hmm. Yeah, no, totally agree, totally agree. You obviously talk with your with elders and, and community leaders and in regards to Aboriginality. What is their consensus in regards to this? Look, I think there's a growing concern. It's been something that everyone's been talking about real quietly. But the problem is, though, we don't control the systems that enable it. Hmm. Uh, um, quite often, and, and you know, I know um, Susie Ingram has written into various um, uh, press articles as well. What happens is people rise up through the ranks. They're going to protect their interests any way they can, whether it be businesses, whether it be jobs. So, and quite often within government, I'll be straight with you as well. They talk about diversity. What they want is diversity of a of a number. They don't want diversity of thought. Mm. And so, far too often, we end up with people who are exercising the, what they're perceiving as their rights as Aboriginal people who have never lived or breathed as Aboriginal people. Mm. I remember when I was in government that, uh, you know, I, I held a policy round table about Aboriginal housing. One of the Johnny-come-latelys, one of the box tickers, um, sat there at uh, time I said, 
three generations, three, four generations since actively identified, by own admission, owns their own home, had three investment properties, and then was sitting there trying to give their opinion on what the needs of Aboriginal communities that need housing are. Now, Gabars in government and senior officials will quite often listen to them because they walk like them, they talk like them, they mm. sound like them. To be honest with you, they are them. Mm. And what they're not doing is so they're taking that because it's more palatable. Mm. And so they're taking policy advice on things that are critical to our people mm. from people who have no idea whatsoever. Yeah. I often say that, um, you know, when you're talking about lawyers, right, that, um, I use this as a bit of an analogy for how I describe Aboriginality. I said, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're charged, right, you're going to want to make sure you've got a lawyer and you want to make sure you're a bloody good lawyer in the area that you need, right? Yeah. If it's criminal law, you're going to want to make sure you've got a good criminal lawyer. If you've got family law, you're going to want to make sure you go through someone that's a good family lawyer. Mm. Having a law degree alone is not enough to be a lawyer. Just like having an Aboriginal ancestor alone is not enough to be an Aboriginal person. Yeah. The second part that you need to meet, you need to actually study for your practicing certificate. So that is you actually going out and saying, you know what, I've built the knowledge, I am ready to be a lawyer. The same way as if you've got heritage, you need to actually grow up and understand what it is to be a blackfella. Mm. You need to understand what it means to be an Aboriginal person. And that second component is where we say, you know, I identify myself as an Aboriginal person to the community. And the third part, when you look at the law at lawyers, they get accepted and admitted to the bar. Mm. That's other lawyers going, you know what, yes, we accept you as a lawyer. The same way as our communities have the rights to accept us as Aboriginal people. And it's funny because when you explain that to guys, they kind of go, oh, yeah, I get that. But when you're talking just about Aboriginality, it just it seems like this blind fog goes over and they don't understand. Yeah. I remember I put up a social media post and I was talking to some of the ministers and stuff about it because we've got these ones down around the central coast and northern beaches of Sydney that all claim they've made direct bloodline descendants. None of them have ever actually proven it. They've never actually um, withstood the tests in terms of land rights as registered Aboriginal owners or as native title. They create this fake news. It's something like Donald Trump's out there. Yeah. You know, we, they just if they, if they say it enough, they get enough radical gubbars get behind them and it creates this false narrative. Yeah. But I remember saying to these, um, to a couple of ministers, they were asking me about it. And I said, you know, do you guys know much about Harry Potter? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, kids watch him. I said, oh, good, so do mine. I said, you know, in Harry Potter, a mudblood is a wizard that doesn't have wizarding parents or grandparents. And they're going, yeah. I said, so these people are like Aboriginal versions of mudbloods. They didn't have Aboriginal parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-parents. But suddenly, magically, they're Aboriginal. Yeah. I said, it's just like being an Aboriginal mudblood. And they started laughing. I said, it gets better. I said, you know, when Harry was attacked as a little baby by Voldemort, I uh, told him to live with the scar, he said he suddenly got some of Voldemort's powers. He could speak to snakes. And they've, they've started, they're, they're trying to hold back the laughter. And I said, they said, yeah. I said, well, if you believe their story, some of these people, you know, they haven't been black in three, four, five, actually five, six, seven, eight generations. Yet magically they find some photos and on a couple of old birth certificates and within six months they're experts on law as an L-O-R-E, culture and language. Mm. When we who have connections to communities, who've lived in communities, who continue to live in communities, they've got knowledge that we don't seem to have. So how does that work? And they've looked at me and they've gone, actually, that's a really good point. I said, well, if you believe their stories, it's about as magical as bloody Harry Potter. Yeah. 
Yeah. And at that point, they all cracked up laughing. I said, but this is the reality. Mm. The, the claims that are being made sometimes mm. and the fact that officials and people with power and authority to, to distribute wealth, to distribute programs, to give scholarships, to give contracts worth millions of dollars, mm. they're the ones who are giving these people the power. So we need to take that power back and yeah. say, well, no, Aboriginal people are the ones who define Aboriginal people. Well, the land rights network, isn't it? Absolutely. When you look at it, like historically, the network has, has come from our people who were actually oppressed at the time and, and mm. from marching on the streets all the way and we end up getting legislation in 83 and then yep. from there we've been we've gone the democratic path yep. of being voted in i can only speak as a councillor they get voted in mm-hmm. to these positions by the community and endorsed by the community our ceos are endorsed by our communities mm-hmm. to run our land councils so in terms how do they uh, justify themselves with their own aboriginal organizations that's pretty easy you go and register with some sort of authority to register your own company and well, then brother. all of a sudden you're you're a, you're a spokesperson it's kind of like what you're saying is actually true like how did those people have some sort of right to even speak to people who are running land councils people who are on boards of land councils people who are part of the network there's really no endorsement from the real aboriginal community no. whereas like you're saying land rights has been there since day dot from the 200 plus 200 years plus all the way through it's always been a part of our history as Aboriginal people, uh, we've had different different things happen along the way, changes of the names and stuff like that. NAC, um, land rights, ATSIC, and all that. But it's still been our community that's been running all these things and 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 engaged with uh, yeah, with with um, controlling these organisations. Well, and you're right, brother. What worries me is that when you look at like the CATSI Act, the Corporations Average and Torres Strait Islander Act. The majority of members and the majority of directors have to be an Aboriginal person, but they're not testing. Mm. Even their current policy says, okay, yes, they have to have a confirmation of Aboriginality, but the registrar can determine whether or not someone's Aboriginal. Mm. That doesn't meet the three-part definition. It doesn't meet the common law determinations that are now enshrined in in, in legal proceedings. Mm. Like I said, you've got Marbo 2 that spelled it out. Then you've got Gibbs versus Capel in 1995. Then you've actually got Shaw versus Wolf in 98. Now, those last two actually talked about, and the justices, the chief justices actually found that having a distant <coughs> Aboriginal ancestor alone is unlikely to meet the legislative requirements to be an Aboriginal person. Yeah. Then you go back to last year, 2021, where the federal government had another case where a New Zealander claimed he was Aboriginal because he didn't want to get deported. The case was Helmbright over in West Australia. And, you know, what Helmbright did was he said, well, five generations ago I was Aboriginal. The court agreed with it. But living in West Australia, growing up in New Zealand, he produced a confirmation of Aboriginality from an organisation in, in Tasmania. Hmm. So that, you know, the law that was applied by the government actually overturned it and threw out, basically ripped it up and said, no, that's not sufficient because we don't believe that the entity that gave you confirmation of Aboriginality has appropriate cultural authority for the group being claimed. Now, this is where, for me, it comes back down to the power and strength of land rights. Mm. But we've got a few challenges, though. I mean, you look at the voice. Do Do I think we actually need to have some say over government? Absolutely. Because there is no accountability at this point in time. Mm. 
you know, it's, um, and I've got major issues at, um, in terms of how the voice will actually be heard if it gets up. Now, when you look at the voice, they're talking about, you know, it's going to be democratically elected and it's there to advise government. You know, we have rights, we have powers, we have ancestral connections. One of my elders once said to me that um, every time I walked through the door, she said, you know, I can see it's like a thousand generations your ancestors are walking through and that's what I've been brought up to do. That's what my, that's what my elders brought me up to do, to be fearless, mm. to walk through and recognise the fact we've got thousands of generations walking through that door with us. Mm. We should not be scared, we should not be fearful. Mm. But, um, and I hope I always exude that. But what we now have is, firstly... With the voice, does it actually give account? Does it give the accountability where we can actually hold government to account? No, I don't think it does, because government can turn around and say, you know, we don't like what you said, so we're going to ignore it. Have a look at when the Uluru statement from the heart was first brought in. Now I'm not saying I'm a supporter one way or the other, but you know, it was presented to to Malcolm Turnbull as the prime minister. And they'd spent like nine or ten million dollars saying, okay, community, we want Aboriginal community, we want to hear what you've got to say. The Aboriginal community turned up, rightly or wrongly, the people who were behind the voice and said, this is what came out. Uh, um, the Prime Minister looked and said, well, thanks, but we don't like what you've said, so we're going to do constitutional recognition because that's what we feel comfortable with, even though you've explicitly said we don't, that you don't want it. This is the problem is, the voice, the first step is, do we have power and authority over government, hold government legitimately to account? I don't know yet. The second component of it is, and this is where for me the Aboriginality issue comes in, who's got the right to vote? Because if we've got 25 or 30% of people under the, under the census saying, hey, they're Aboriginal, but the reality is they're not. They don't meet the legal construct, they're not attached to a proper community, they're not recognised as an Aboriginal person, that's 25-30% of the voice that's actually not representing our interests and our needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and you go back to the old ATSIC elections, you know, the issues with, like I said, where, with Gibbs versus Capewell in uh, 1995, Shaw versus Wolf in uh, 98, was about the ATSIC elections, because people coming out of the woodwork saying, hey... I found out I've got some ancestor and now I want to run for ATSIC. Uh, uh, you know, what checks and balances are being put in place to make sure that the people who are actually running and the people who are voting are actually uh, are people who have the cultural authority and legitimacy? Because those people ultimately, if a voice goes ahead, they're meant to be representing us. Mm. And how is that going to potentially be duplicate? I mean, look, I do think that in land rights we've got some really big challenges and issues. I think, you know, we need to remobilise our base. Our true strength comes from our people, mm. not from the legislation, not from non-Indigenous staff working in our organisations. Mm. The true power comes from our grassroots movements. When you look at those old photos, uh, Tom, and you saw, I mean, one of my favourite photos I, I showed you guys a little while ago, there's old Uncle Lyle, old Farfi, and Uncle, Uncle Solly. And sorry, I get emotional every time I think about them because they just, they both meant a lot to me. And, you know, Uncle Solly's staring down, he's got the afro and he's staring them down at the front of the Land Rights Now sign. You know, for me, that's where it started from. It was a show of strength. We were tired of not being heard, so we took the power. Mm. Actually, we took our power back. Mm. Uh, and what worries me is that, 
you know, unless we can mobilize our people, mm. our power is going to be diluted because you've got people who want to hear a more moderate voice. And the more moderate voices, not all the time, but quite often those more moderate voices are the ones who are claiming Aboriginality but have not met the legal tests for mm. them. Yeah. Uh, and they've got their own interests. They want to get the jobs. They want the kids to get scholarships. They want, you know, they they want to have their businesses thrive. You know, I don't begrudge anyone for wanting to have, be wealthy, but don't do it off the back of black suffering. It's definitely an, an issue that our people have been going through the last, at least, I reckon, 20 years. Mm. I remember there's, um, there's people in this community here, my community, who have all of a sudden just changed lanes and stood up and said, we're this, we're this. Mm our ancestors the queen of the local tribe and we never had queens or kings <laughs> well this is those well, those king plates were a colonial sign to dismantle our traditional governance structures 100 percent. well all that that's that's what we were dealing with uh, mm. i remember 20 years ago at one of the local land councils here and um i remember some of the community uh because our mob have big hearts too oh yeah let's 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 welcome them in, and and but um, I I actually resigned that week after they actually became members. They accepted them as members, yeah. but these non-Aboriginal people turned on the community yeah. and said, "You have to do what we say." Yep. Yeah. And this was at the land council meeting. Everyone blew up and said, "Who the hell do you think you are?" Yeah. Yeah. And then they ended up the mob run them out of out of the meeting, and they yeah. never come back. Yeah. But those same people are actually out there um, doing site surveys now mm. and they're earning big dollars. And um, as we know, they don't need to register. They just register with that. I think it's OEH. Yeah, as yeah. a registered Aboriginal party. As a registered Aboriginal party. Mm. And now they're making big dollars on, on all these new developments all over the... Well, so. this is part of where the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Bill that I was given evidence at this morning... You know, and a huge shout out to my brothers and sisters down at Metro because yeah. they're on the same path as us. And, and we stood united and said, no, you know, it, uh, the Cultural Heritage Bill needs to only recognise local cultural authority either sits where there has been a native title claim that has been determined. Mm. There are registered Aboriginal owners that have gone through the process under the Land Rights Act or yeah. local land council yeah. to stop the people from from illegitimately coming out of the woodwork and claiming. We've got the same thing. I mean, our creation story is beyond me. Yet I'm hearing all these stories. I'm reading these reports about a, um, some, some of these uh, some box tickers coming out of the woodwork claiming they're Bungaree descendants, uh, uh, recreating the narrative I read a report that someone had actually said that the rainbow serpent was the creator. You know, the rainbow serpent absolutely is part of our dreaming, but our creator and our creation story was Biyami. Mm. And not just through oral history, through our oral traditions, mm. but on the Central Coast, we've got sites that are 10, 15, 20,000 years old. Mm. At, at near Singleton, you've got the Biyami Cave. The, the colonists, the first invaders, came out and documented the stories of Biyami. Mm. Yet here are these people trying to legitimise their claims so they can make a, a lot of money. Mm. Uh, it's uh, suddenly trying to recreate. And, and it distills. It, it, I find it really culturally offensive. The mm. same way as for me when people say, oh, I'm part of Solon Generation. I mean, I remember when I was in Canberra, there was uh, someone who reckoned they were Torres Strait Islander descent. 
they reckon they were part of Stolen Generation. And when I spoke to Torres Strait Islanders, they said there was no Stolen Generation on the Torres Strait Islands. So how, how disgusting is that? That's like walking up to someone and saying, a German person walking up to a Jewish person, again, no offence, saying, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Holocaust survivor. You know, mm. if that happened, the white community being up in arms, mm. but they allow it to happen and they give these people power mm. over legitimate community. It's, it's an interesting time at the moment and, and I think that there's no time... We haven't had to stand together, but this time now we really need to stand together and we really need to keep an eye on on who we're accepting as being Aboriginal in our communities because we know it's money. It's all about money with a lot of these people. Mm. Yeah, money motivated, and it's and it's motivating people changing their their historical who they are as family members, and and a lot of their families don't uh, actually even identify. No, no. You've got some family members that are saying they are, and, and 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 I get really suspicious straight away, and I think, man, how do you stand up and say you're Aboriginal, but your sister's saying she isn't? She isn't. So it's like, to be to be honest, I think that eighty percent of Australians have an ancestor, an mm-hmm. Aboriginal ancestor, but in saying that, I don't claim it. I I, I don't recognise mm-hmm. them as Aboriginal people. You may have an ancestor, but you're not Aboriginal. That's what I've said to a few few mates of mine. Mm. Yeah, you, you can say, but I know it's all about money. And I, I've got a mate who, who reaches out to me every now and again. Can you get me some sort of... He sends me a text message. And I said, what do you need an Aboriginality form for? And he said, I'm trying to get work uh, for my business. It's a big part of the procurement. He's got a, a, a carpentry business. And I just leave him on red. I say, you're disrespectful, mate. Stop it. Don't, don't you, message brother. me anymore. That's the first question I ask when someone comes to me and says, "I need to get, I need to get my piece of paper." Yeah. I look and go, "Why do you want it?" I remember about twenty-five, oh, what, almost twenty-five years ago, my dad wrote in just an editorial into the Courier Mail. Mm. Uh, um, with exactly the point you were talking about, he he was lamenting back then because back then it was at a point in time where every Australian was, well, not every Australian, but so many Australians were trying to find that they had some an- ancestral link to the First Fleet. Mm. And he actually said to know, he, and my dad wrote into the Courier Mail and said that um, what we'll see in the next fifteen or twenty years is people now coming out of the woodwork saying that they've all got yeah, acknowledged an Aboriginal ancestor. Mm. But the problem, and that's why I quite often use the, the analogy that just because you find out you've got an ancestor that might be English from the First Fleet doesn't mean you're an English citizen. Yeah. You know, doesn't mean you've got any power or authority in that regard. Yeah. But it's, it's something that we need to take back. Yeah. And, you know... There are going to be, I mean, I keep saying it, but we can't, can't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs. Mm. Where people are involved in deliberate and targeted fraud, and you look at some of the stuff that's actually happened. Just just recently, Dark Emu Exposed has um, written up some articles in terms of Dennis Foley and Jacqueline Troy. You know, now I'm not an anthropologist, but certainly the, the body of evidence that's been put forward in that and the level of research into those two people, they're both people who are claiming and have made a lot of money of being Aboriginal academics and Aboriginal business people. Can they be charged for that? Well, this is the problem, is that that there needs to be an entity that actually takes them on. And, you know, for me, that's where land rights should be sitting. 
we should be collectively taking them on. Mm. And this is one of the things that I wanted to do it, um, it, um, if I ended up where I, where I always wanted to, was that we could actually take a forceful stand on this mm. and create the legal precedent to say, you know what, no, here are people we can prove legally have been defrauding public funds, claiming it, and, you know... Taxpayers' money. Taxpayer money, but actually going after them, because what they've also done is they've delegitimised Aboriginal people and Aboriginal communities. They're, they're diluting Aboriginal creation stories and bloodlines mm. and delegitimising. And so to take the standard through civil proceedings, but then using the power through CAPO to actually lobby government to say, you know, this is the quantum of funding that these people have taken. This is serious fraud. Mm. And have them prosecuted, have them charged, have them prosecuted, and have them convicted. Yeah. Because that way, the only way that this will start to turn is now, some of these people realise you're going to lose everything and you're going to go to jail if you're actually committing if you're committing fraud. Because it's not just cultural fraud, it is fraud they're receiving a benefit by deceit. Yeah. Well, when the early first fleet came out, it was mostly all men. So they had to look for women, the white white convicts, when they got here. And that's why I think that people do have Aboriginal ancestors, yeah. but it doesn't make you Aboriginal. Well, if you haven't grown up as a black fella, you don't know what it's like to be oppressed in this country. You don't know what it's like not to get into nightclubs. You don't know what it's like to get money dropped into your hand and people not wanting to touch you and, oh, no, 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 this shop's closed. You're not allowed, oh, no, you can't get into this restaurant. Exactly. No, 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 we're all full. We've got bookings. And this is just normal day run-of-the-mill things that our community actually go through. And this is an everyday occurrence in Australia. I think Eddie Betts spoke about how um, he was asked to be removed, I think it was from a, a pool with his daughter, with his little daughter and and two, uh, I think it was in the in the news yesterday yeah. about the things that him and other high profile AFL players are going through at the moment, and they're only just starting to come out with with it. And I think it's because of the uh, what's happening now, and, and it's more acceptable uh, to be Aboriginal and to be able to talk about these issues of, of oppression um, without actually getting repercussions put back on you like we look at things like it's the likes of Anthony Mundine that have stood up and Luttrell and and Tamana and and all that in regards to making the stand now they were persecuted uh, chalk and tea over the racism stuff but I don't think these people are actually realize uh, the hurts and that that it's it's caused a lot of our people the trauma and, and, and it's 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 all a part of the closing the gap i think i think it's stress i think mm-hmm. there's so many different issues that our people have gone through that actually affects our health and it's why our people are in these positions because of they've gone through oppression and mm-hmm. and and a lot of these people have never ever experienced any of this, this stuff and the problem is what they do is they claim <coughs> that they are then being oppressed by us and that it's lateral violence you know, when I was in government, part of the issue was the amount of people that had come through the woodwork and say, oh, well, if you question it, said, who's your mob? Where are you from? And if you started digging on that, that's the standard question. You walk into any community, people go, hey, who are you? Where, where are you from? And you connect the dots. I remember passing you over the years because, as, as you know, I mean, it uh, wasn't ultra close with your dad, but I knew your dad yeah. uh, um, through land rights. Yeah. And, you know, the first time we really got to meet each other was at Uncle Wiles for you, know, Uncle, Uncle Fast for you, and we yeah. were up there with Chop. Yeah. And, you know, straight away, okay, here's your mob, and you can put it together straight away. Yeah. Uh, that's our way. And, and it's, it's not an offensive question. No, no. It's just how, how do we 
position each other in the community and and where do you fit oh that's why you're sitting over there with all them oh you're related to them and oh yeah oh you sit over there because that's it's like sitting around a campfire where you're sitting on the boring ground you're sitting with your mob your families all the different families in traditional times that it's a modern modern day way of us just connecting each other and this is the thing that worries me because we're seeing our generations get fairer Mm. i mean my daughters are both fair Mm. Uh, they go in the sun, they go real dark, I go real dark in the sun too. But mm. but if it wasn't for people knowing who their father was, yeah. who their grandfather was, yeah. and who their grandma or who their great grandmother was, mm. you know, people yeah, would yeah, they'd be copping the same stuff and, and what worries me is that, that so many of these legitimate ones use the oh look, you can it doesn't matter how much how much tea you got in or how much milk you put in coffee. They're using that to justify it because yeah. they think it's only about the colour of their skin. Where it's actually about who you are. Yeah. And you don't have to be you don't have to be loud and proud. You don't have to be out there at the front line like yeah. people like you are, brother, and, and and like Uncle Soli and all these people in our newsport councillors and, and, and the people in the land rights movement. You don't have to be at the front line, no. but you've got to be known. Yeah. And that's the thing, which they're hiding behind that Yeah. to validate. And I quite often say, like I said, they, the amount of times I've had, oh, that's lateral violence. Now I'm not bound by a code of conduct, I can actually say it's only lateral violence if you are actually black. And if I don't believe you're black, it's not lateral violence. Yeah, exactly. That's just a black fella asking someone who's saying they're a black fella whether or not you actually are. Yeah. Uh, that ain't lateral. Yeah, no. It's... Um, and, you know, this is the thing is, though, that they get themselves into positions of power and authority and they plead down and they go, I'm being bullied, I'm being harassed. The reason I wear glasses, when I was a young kid and I was sent to a boarding school and it was pretty horrific at times. And when they realised that um, our families, as the surname's Moyle, and I understand apparently my, my grandfather didn't really have much to do with him, but there's records in Iatsis for my grandfather, apparently he was connected to the Yorta people, but... We, we identify with the Bakers and the Barkers and the Johnsons and, 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 and all through there. Mm. But, um, from, from my grandmother's side, yeah. uh, we're matrilineal. Right? Mm. Um, and that's the side we knew. Mm. When they realised that there was, no, yeah, there was no white family's Baker up through there, they beat the crap out of me. Mm. I had about five of them. I still wear glasses to this day. They haven't experienced that. They haven't, they've got no empathy for it. No. They want to commoditise those stories yeah. to say, hey, well, like you said with, with that lad that you know, Oh, look, I want to get a contract because I want to make more money. Yeah. Whereas for us, it's about how do we lift all our people? How do we lift our communities? Yeah. And what you're saying in regards to that, that tea thing, I think to myself, like, yeah, they're using that there. That, that, that's a good one, like, for... Because we are getting fairer, our kids are getting fairer, and it doesn't matter. It is what it is, just genetically. I don't know what it is, but we do get fairer. But that, that tea thing... And they say, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter if you put milk in, it's all, it, it's still tea. No, it actually becomes milk. Exactly. You, you keep breeding out with different mob, you'll, you'll become milk. Exactly. And it's not tea anymore, it just tastes like milk. So it, it was good for a little that little thing, but at the end of the day, um, and it's like these generations, like 30 ancestors, non-Aboriginal ancestors, and yeah. you've got one Aboriginal ancestors. Well, you're milk, yep. as far as I'm concerned. And this is where, with our cultural authority statement we issued at, um, for Darkenjung, I actually said, you know, half a percent of the world's male population can prove a DNA connection to Genghis Khan. That's 16 million people. So does that mean suddenly there's 16 million Mongol emperors out there? 
<laughs> now, and because of the impact of that, you know, it, um, you got people in every nation in in the world who can trace some ancestral connection or DNA connection back to Genghis Khan. That does not make the Mongol emperors. That does not make the Mongol citizens. No. It doesn't even make the Mongol people. No. Yet there's this belief that, oh, I found out that, you know, and again, quite often these people, I'm not going to prove it. I'm just going to tell you I've got it. Yeah. I'm just going to, I'm going to say, because if you try to actually say, well, who who is it? And then you start to dig, that's lateral violence. That's what they're claiming. Rather than actually saying, you know, okay, and, and again, no disrespect, my, we've got families, I think all of our families have been touched by stolen generation. Mm. My family line wasn't, but we face other atrocities. Mm. But you got people who turn around and say, oh. you know, I'm part of stolen generation, I can't find who I am. I said, have you gone to the ITS family history record? Have you gone to link up? Oh, yes, they can't. Oh, well, you're not black. You know, it's... Um, and for me, the people that are still experiencing and suffering the intergenerational trauma of the stolen generation, mm. it's so offensive when someone turns up and they try to hide behind that. They it's, just use it as, they hear it as a word. Exactly. And they found an ancestor, oh, they must be part of the stolen generation. No, yeah. it's not stolen generation. Your ancestor chose not to be Aboriginal. Exactly. That means it cuts off with you. Yeah. There's no coming back from that. Well, it, it, you don't have any the principles, exactly. characters, what we do. You're not connected to community anymore on how we deal with each other, interact with each other. There's positions in the community, in families. You're a, you're a spokesperson for your family at a certain age. Yep. You might you might be get put up at that position when you're at 19, 20 because you're the most responsible in the family. Well, they'll go, you know what? The grandmother will go, you're the one who's speaking on behalf because your father's still drunk. Mm-hmm. He's carrying on partying and still doing silly things. You're the spokesperson. You got a job. We're all eating off you, grandson. Yeah, you, yeah, you're yeah. working and you're providing for your sisters. You're looking after your grandmother, your, your brothers, and all that. You're the most. You're our spokesperson, mm-hmm. even though he might be the youngest. But it's chosen by community, with cultural authority. With cultural authority. It's interesting, brother. I quite often actually throw it back, and for any of the guys, any of the white fellows that are actually <coughs> listening to this. The reason I give examples like the lawyers and that is to help you understand because you talk to actual Aboriginal people in the community, they understand it straight away. Mm. But when you put it in those kind of contexts, it helps the non-Indigenous community understand. Yeah. One of the things I was going to say, brother, is that you know I've been reading these cases, at, um, these legal cases in the news and stuff like that where you know some of these women have come out and said, you know, I'm a cancer survivor and they were using that to actually um, fraudulently uh, create their own fitness apps and, and and products and stuff like that, and they rate they rate millions of dollars out of people. They've been prosecuted, but people are actually sitting there and legitimately saying, "Well, as a cancer sufferer, not me, but but I've read the news where people have said, you know, I've suffered cancer. Cancer touched our family. That was so insulting to our family that these people did it." And people can understand that they, that that happens, whether it be with sexual violence, whether it be with cancer, whether it be with illness. But they don't understand the the, the same offences created for us as Aboriginal people. When people are trying to steal our identity, yeah, 
It's, um, it's, it, but but suddenly someone steals the identity of someone that's survived, a cancer survivor or or someone that's it's, it's um, experienced child abuse or someone that's experienced family violence and, and not to denigrate those but if people stole that that kind of narrative falsely mm. we've seen it in the news they're prosecuted yeah. but it seems to be accepted and this is why the strength of what we need to do within land rights the strength of our communities we need to get back to the heart and soul of who we actually are yeah. And this is where then where we went with the ICAC complaint to take the power away from the people who are actually given the power to give them consequences. If you want to accept and acknowledge and give someone benefits that has not legally met the definition of being an Aboriginal person, you are responsible for that. And if that means you're guilty of corruption, then you are prosecuted for that. It was funny, when I was in government, I remember having a, a debate, let's say that, where at uh, the department I was working in was trying to work out how to do confirmation of heritage. And I said, no, no, it's confirmation of Aboriginality. Confirmation of heritage just means that you found some long-lost ancestor. And they came up with a policy. And so it was basically an AMS had to do it or they, you do a stat deck. And I was playing on two sex. I've got three different confirmations of Aboriginality. Actually, my fourth one, which I'd love to find because old Uncle Wile, old Farfi and Kenny Cope. It um, actually signed off of mine back way back in the in, in the in the nineties and that, mm. and you know it. Um, for me, I'd love to find that again, just just because they're both past now. Mm. But I said to him, you know, I've got a letter saying that introducing me as the chair of the land council. Yeah, mm. it's a couple of years old now, but it doesn't date. And they said, no, we wouldn't accept that. And I said, so under the Land Rights Act, we're not allowed to provide a confirmation of Aboriginality, but a letter saying that I'm a member and that I'm the chairperson. And I've been the chairperson for a decade means nothing to you. But to be a member of a land council, I have to meet the three parts. I have to go through the membership application. Then I have to be voted in by my members. I found it really disgusting that people, that the people in positions of power, the non-Indigenous people that, were, that had control over the benefits, whether it be jobs and stuff like that, would be uh, taking a stat deck from someone who says, and it will never be tested, over a letter from people saying, well, actually, you know what? No, I am, and I've been tested by my community. I've been accepted by my community. Mm. And, I mean, it was lucky because I, I didn't have to apply for the job. I was uh, a lot more senior than those positions. Mm. But I used that as an example. And I said, you know, you've got people coming through. You might see them as junior within um, a, a business perspective or a government perspective. Mm. But, um, but these are people that are culturally more senior. Some people are culturally more senior than the people you're actually accepting statics from. And that is just so disrespectful to do so. I think it's a misunderstanding mm. of our cultural hierarchies Absolutely. and how we do things. Like, how do these people actually... It's their privilege because of they're coming from the, yeah. the dominating culture to be sitting above us mm. and and they take advice from us. Mm. And it's kind of like... It's, it's that white, white supremacy at the moment... Yeah. Because they're they're ruling our country and and they have say over us and they they're they're actually privileging off off the fact that their ancestors come here and destroyed our culture and they're privileging off off that mm. and, and it's like it's it's really insensitive as far as I'm concerned from my perspective from what you're saying and it's uh, I think that we can do better government can do better than that too and they need to be pointed out that you guys are still positioning yourselves above us at all times you're saying you want to work together mm. but it's always you positioning yourself above us from the voice from 
from all of these different uh, new new ideas and new new entities, it's always us having a they're setting a new thing up, but they're always sitting above us. The power and control is never handed to us. So under closing the gap, they talk about the fact that priority reform one is about working in partnership and having shared decision making with Aboriginal people. Treaty. Treaty. That's why they don't they don't want to recognise us as equal people. Exactly. They think that they're better than us mentally. Yep. Why isn't there a, a, an agreement between two people? Yep. And this is where it's it's interesting <coughs> because I mean, like for me, my mum's Scottish. She's Scottish ancestry. I mean, so many of us are mixed bloods. We have different ancestries, but we are Aboriginal people Mm. because of the last two components of the three-part definition. And that's what makes us who we are because we're part of community. Mm. We we understand community. We understand the fight and we give back to community. Mm. Uh, um, What worries me, and you're absolutely spot on, is the people and, and government has control over our culture still. Hmm. by choosing not to apply their own laws, Hmm. by choosing not to allow us, in accordance with their laws and in accordance with their common law determinations, Hmm. to actually have control over identity. You know, it's funny. If you write to a minister and say, I've got serious concerns about this person, they're not actually Aboriginal, use Bruce Pascoe as an example. The minister will write out and go, you know what? uh, Aboriginality is a really complex issue and it's really a matter for the community. Okay, stop giving him grants then and let the community have the conversation and make the decision as to whether he is or isn't. Mm. You know, that, um, government says on one hand, oh, look, it's up to you guys. But then their systems and processes disempower mm. us. Mm. But, um, but it's the same, and maybe this is a conversation for another podcast, but you look at the Aboriginal flag. Okay, it's a design. And no disrespect to Harold Thomas, who, who Uncle Harold, who's uh, managed it. I mean, I know some of his nieces and that. Uh, someone know one of his daughters but at what point now for me it's not just a design it is part of our cultural identity people talk about the fact there that you know and here's another example of the system being stacked against us so copyright system meant that you know Wham Clothing who used to own Birby Arts it, um, took possession of the license Government had to bail it out. Now, Birribee Art was fined, I think it was $2.5 million for importing fake Aboriginal art. They wound themselves up like a lot of these gabbas do. One company falls over, they just resurrect it and call it a different name. Suddenly, they have control over something that is part of our cultural identity from a contemporary Aboriginal perspective. Now, government goes out and buys it and pays them God knows how many millions of dollars. So we've got gabbas making, uh, disingenuous gabbas making extra money again off Aboriginal identity. And I say disingenuous gabbas because my mother is not Aboriginal mm. and I respect that and I love her dearly. But she also, she, she wouldn't actually dream. People who are legitimately part of our people, part of our communities, they marry into our communities, mm. wouldn't do this. No, they, they understand the protocols yeah. and what's respectful and what's not respectful. Exactly. So now though, we've got a government who says, you know, the flag is free for everyone to use. Everyone. Everyone. Let that sink in. Within a week, we had non-Indigenous businesses putting the Aboriginal flag on hard hats and T-shirts and everything else. Well, most of those weren't run by blackfellas, were they? Mm. So they were actually making money profiteering the Aboriginal flag as culture, part of culture, part of our identity in a contemporary context. Mm. Selling it to the most disadvantaged people and the poorest people as a cohort in Australia so they can make more money. Now, we've got a government that controls the copyright 
Now, if that's part of our cultural identity, and I know I mean, we've all, most of us, so many of us have got tattoos and markings and stuff now that represent an iteration of that flag. Because it's not just a design. It's part of who we are as, as our modern Aboriginal identity. Hmm. But what we've got is we've got a government that, okay, yes, I have said sorry for the Solon generation, but we've got a government who historically has perpetrated some of the worst human rights violations and atrocities on Aboriginal people, mm. now controlling who actually gets to use the flag yeah. and saying we want it for everyone, not Aboriginal people controlling our own identity. Mm. So what do you think in regards to, we're talking about government always thinking themselves as being superior to us, their culture being superior, they always sit above us. So we've got all legislation, the ATSICs, the NACs, the, the state land councils, the voice. They're all going to be underneath and they can cho- pick and choose when they want to listen to us. So do you think the answer for forward for us is a treaty where we actually sit side by side and respectfully making decisions together? Real good question, brother. I think we need to do another broadcast. Hey? It's, uh, I'm a supporter of treaty. Yeah. But we need to understand what treaty is. Yeah. So is treaty across the whole of the state? Is it based on Aboriginal nations? One of the questions I asked in the ACT uh, when I was living down in Canberra, I'm a Camilla Gomeroy man living in on all in Ambry country mm. who represents me. Now, luckily, uh, I've built strong relationships, as many of us do when we move to a place somewhere, we actually build relationships with mob. Mm. So Become part of that community, eh, bro? Exactly, become part of the community. Now, for me, though, treaty is a complex issue that we need to unpack and understand. Mm. To be honest with you, I think the true power has to always come from our people. Mm. When I look at treaty, I think we absolutely need treaty. But every treaty with First Nations people from a Western-based society has been broken Mm. with little to no ramifications. Now, that's not saying we don't do it. We need it. It can't be the only mechanism. Mm. And this is where... You know, I actually think that, and one of the things that, uh, that um, I, you know, I remember saying to someone when they asked me about the voice, I said, why the hell would I want to ask for permission to be heard when I have a right to be heard? And, mm. uh, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have mechanisms, but we shouldn't be relying exclusively on those mechanisms. And our, us as communities, through our own leadership, should be able to understand when we have the power and strength to actually when we take a stand on things. Mm. We need to go back to some of those old ways to mobilise our people, mm. to remember what the struggle is. That's where the power actually sits. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Hey, I, I'm, I'm actually just starting to think treaty, just having this conversation with me and you because we can advise ministers and, and all these people, but at the end of the day, they can pick and choose whether they listen to us or not. And can I ask here in New South Wales, what is treaty? Is treaty compensation? Well, technically and legally, treaty in New South Wales can't be compensation because the Land Rights Act provided compensation for the dispossession of our ancestors. Mm. So, we don't. I don't think we've even done a lot of work to actually map out what treaty means for us. Is treaty about servicing and improving and enhancing servicing to Aboriginal people? Absolutely, I believe it should be. But that also then flows over into the National Agreement on Closing the Gap, which we the Coalition of Peaks on. Mm. So, where does that start and stop? When I look at the Victorian Treaty as an example, and some of the conversations there, is treaty based on cultural connections and linkages? For me, as a Camilla Gomeroy man living on Darkenjung country, there are no Darkenjung ancestors as far as I know, 
uh, or as far as being proven, uh, to, we are we do have people who claim uh, Darkenian. We've got people who claim other nations, fictitious nations, which. Um, well, I could go back to the Harry Potter statement. Pretty magical. Isn't it funny? Like our governors, all of a sudden they read what, like we laugh about it. You're a book culture black fella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 torment each other, and then all of a sudden we've got non-Aboriginal people that are claiming, but they actually thinking they don't even know these sayings that we say amongst each other. Yeah, yeah. And they're actually going, oh well, that's that, and I've read it in that book. Yeah. And it's like, well, that was written by a white fella. Exactly. And this is where their cultural identity is coming from. From from us. And to be honest with you, brother, some of the actual historical records when it's been reviewed by the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Office has been called a 19th century fiction. Hmm. But but this is the thing, though, for me, though, so what does treaty actually mean for us? And I think this is something that we need to fully understand. Hmm. But on top of that, too, though, one of the big questions I've often asked is, if we're looking at compensation, right, so land rights in New South Wales is compensation. It's not based on traditional ownership because our mobs were forced around. Mm. My great-grandmother was moved from Barlin to Glah, and then uh, my grandmother, when she was a real little girl, was moved from Mungadai down to, she was lucky that they were on the south side of the river, was moved down to Moree, mm. uh, and then moved down to Blacktown. Mm. Uh, you know, there's all these things that have, that have happened, but I've got a big question. I don't mean to be offensive to people, but... Why do we seem to let Aboriginal people who have no cultural connections to what is now New South Wales or the ACT because we're all one mob be part of our compensation? Mm. You know, if we went to land rights in Northern Territory, we couldn't sign up as a member. Mm. But here, by default, again, it's the white system. We have to give them a voice mm. when we're talking about our culture, our heritage. Mm. And this is why I keep on saying that, that the power of land rights, the true power of land rights, and, and this is going back to the things that I was told by some of, some of our elders, you know, the true power of land rights has never sat in the legislation. It sits in our people. Mm. And sometimes we've got to show that power and strength. Yep. Totally agree with you. Well, thanks so much, brother. No, my brother, any time. Yeah, I'm going to get you on again, I think, because a lot of our mob don't know what's going on, bro, at that political level. Yeah. And, and someone like yourself who's been in government for so long and, and can actually give our um, our viewers a bit of a, an update and let them know what, what this means to not only Aboriginal people but non-Aboriginal people who listen to the podcast. Um, give us an update and, and, and tell us what what's going on because people can use all these big words and all that, but at the end of the day, we don't understand it, a lot of us. Brother, and, I remember because I never finished high school. Right? And when I started, I was a trainee in New South Wales Housing, the old housing commission, yeah. which is funny because I used to be a housing tenant. And, yeah. um, and my grandmother looked at me and she said, Bob, work out how they think work how they talk, work out how they communicate, and you can beat them. And every day I used to turn up to work when I was in government was learning how to beat them, how to beat the system, because it's only then that we can actually win and we can actually lift our people. And, you know, always happy to be part of here. uh, But but for me it is, it's about educating our people and it's about bringing our mob from the grassroots, from the ground, along that journey with us. Yeah. All power to you, brother, for, no, for getting this together. Awesome, brother. Thanks for coming on the show. And, and you, your grandmother was a very wise person. 
Yeah, she um, you say all the time, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, and and she was uh, obviously a strong woman who who influenced you and and your influences is right across the state, bro. I'm proud of what you do, and and thanks so much, and and hopefully you can come back on again soon. We're shooting for the stars, living in the sky. Well, leave a five star review for living on the leading edge, living on the leading edge, wherever you listen.